If you are able, please stand as your act of worship for the reading and receiving of God's holy and fallible word from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the word remains forever. You may now be seated. Please join with me in prayer as we ask the Lord for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Good and gracious Father, we come before you acknowledging your tender heart for your beloved children. Oh Lord, we need you every moment of our lives and you know that we need something more beyond, something more beyond uh, just our physical needs. Lord, we need our hearts to be renewed and reoriented back to the gospel. So I pray, Lord, as your word goes forth through the proclamation of it this morning, that the spirit would illuminate your truth and stir our affections for Christ. And I pray that you would show us what it means to walk in the love of Christ and that it may be a tangible reality in our lives. We thank you so much. And I pray that this preaching of the word would be preached with clarity and conviction and that your name would be exalted and your people will be edified for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever I go to a restaurant, the first thing I look for on a menu are the pictures. If they don't have any pictures, I'll reach out in my pocket, pull out my phone to go so far to Yelp pictures of various dishes that I want to eat. It's simply not enough for me to look at a mundane list of ingredients that go into a dish. In order for me to get a better sense of what I'm going to eat, I need to see how all of the ingredients that are listed needs to come together through a tangible depiction of what my dish is finally going to look like when it comes out and I get a chance to devour it. Like pictures of food on a menu, the Apostle Paul not only lists out a list of ingredients to capture the essence of the Christian life, but he tangibly depicts for us a picture of what our lives and our church body transformed by the power of the gospel should look like. 
In our passage today, the apostle presents to us a picture of how the gospel should affect our lives. The apostle Paul captures that the Christian life in a metaphor, in the metaphor of an exercise of walking in love, which lends us to our central truth of our sermon today, which is since we have received the love of Christ, we must walk in a new way of love. Before I tell you the following points of our sermon, it's crucial to, for us to know the background of the passage. So I want to go briefly of the surrounding passage, especially the preceding. But I want us to first look at the first word of our passage in verse 25. Notice how in verse 25, it states, therefore. From the outlook, this passage might look like Paul is going off a tangent, like our mothers went off a tangent of how it's wrong to be angry, of how it's wrong for Christians to steal, and how it's improper to speak in impurity. In other words, our passage today might merely look like a list of dry moral commands. But this pivotal conjunction, therefore, serves as a bridge between the what to do's with the reason why we do these things in the very first place. This particular structure and sequence is called the gospel indicative and the gospel imperative structure or relationship, which is a pattern that recurs in the scriptures, especially in the Pauline epistles, which first grounds us in the gospel promises, then calls us to moral commands to live in light of the gospel. In other words, the gospel indicative is what Christ has done on behalf for us. And the gospel imperative, on the other hand, are commands that then instructs us to propel us of how we shall then live in light of the gospel truth. It's so crucial that we understand this gospel indicative and imperative structure and ordering. Because if you mix this order up by first focusing on performing mere moral commands rather than first resting upon the gospel truth, it leads to moralism, which is not Christianity at all. The Apostle Paul employs this gospel indicative imperative pattern by first laying out the gospel indicative in the preceding verses, verse 20, verses 21 through 24, where Paul first grounds the church into the reality that you are made a new creation in Christ before giving a list of moral imperatives, which we will dive in our passage today. It is because you are grounded in a new identity of Christ, Paul then calls you to quit living in your old way that you used to live in falsehood in verse 25 and live in our new identity, imaging Christ and in holiness as seen in verse 24. With all that being said, with the background in mind and the structure in mind, I want us to consider two main points that we will go over. The first point being, the road to walk in love is to love God and hate what he hates. 
The second point being the motivation to walk in love is Christ's sacrificial love. So the question that we should ask is, what does it mean to walk in love? What is the way to Christian living? The road to walk in love is to love God and hate what he hates. It's to live in affectionate obedience unto the triune God. The way to live the Christian life is to love God by hating the things God hates and loving the things God loves. And this passage, as we look at it from the outset, might look like a smorgasbord of moral principles and imperatives scattered over of what the Christian life might constitute. In other words, this passage from the outset might look like a plate you get at a buffet with 10 different dishes scattered and mixed all together all over the place. But if you look closely at this list of moral commands, you will see how the Apostle Paul intentionally follows a basic pattern as he goes down this list by first presenting a negative aspect of the command, which depicts how we ought to no longer live. And on the other hand, he then transitions into a positive aspect of the command, which depicts how we ought to live in the gospel. In other words, there is an inner logic at play in the way Paul is presenting this list of moral commands by depicting how the gospel changed, changes our affections to hate the things we once loved and now love the things God loves. And this gospel reality is demonstrated in these very commands by showing how our old vices can be changed to new virtues and how our ungodly affections can be turned to new godly affections. We'll look at the first example of this in verse 28. We see how the gospel turns greed to generosity. If you look with me in verse 28, it states, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The Apostle Paul here gives us a tangible picture of how the gospel can turn a dishonest thief into a diligent laborer. This sort of runs parallel to how the Apostle Paul was once an enemy of the church, and now in the gospel he is made an apostle of Christ, which brings much transformation. But in this specific example, what underlies the action of stealing is an attitude of greed within the heart. We being made a new creation are no longer called to be greedy, but the gospel changes our hearts and our orientation to be generous. The word Paul chooses for labor here carries a force of the sense of laboring to the point of weariness, to the point of exhaustion. This force of this present imperative shows how the acts of generosity should become a new habit, a new way of life, which then replaces our old habit of stealing. Furthermore, notice how Paul emphasizes at the end of verse 28, how diligent labor should result in being generous to others in need. Paul states that the Christian must work hard so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Some of the reasons and motivations we might have to work hard in our workplaces is to buy a bigger home, buy a nicer car, buy the newest iPhone, get out of debt and go on a nice vacation. 
all of these things are good things we can enjoy in proportion and moderation, but the gospel work ethic, which Paul notes here, first and foremost teaches us to work hard to give to those in need, which goes against the tide and grain of the American dream, which we were incubated to. And it goes against being self-centered by placing others before yourselves. Why does Paul call us to do this? It is because Christ generously offered up his life for you that you must generously offer up your life to serve others. The gospel ethic orients us and teaches us to work hard and be generous in light of what Christ first did on our behalf so that we might be a blessing of God to others for we are God's workmanship. And now in verse 29, we will see how the gospel then turns filthy language to fitting language that builds up and edifies the church. Look with me in verse 29 as it states, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We're commanded here to no longer use filthy language, but instead use fitting language that builds up and edifies and encourages one another for the glory of Christ. Commentators here agree that this word corrupting can be better be translated as filthy, which was a rare and colorful word to characterize unwholesome talk. The basic meaning of the term is rotten or putrid. It was used to refer to rotted wood, rotten fruit or rancid flowers, which I imagine to be a disgusting smell. This word filthy depicts the pungent stench of sin, which is permeating in its nature to ruin everything around it. We must remember that the Apostle Paul here in this context is speaking to pagan converts from Ephesus, which was an epicenter for idolatry. We sometimes often might romanticize of the early church being picture perfect, but in reality, the church has always had its fair share of struggles. The passage here exposes how the Ephesian new converts and believers struggled with lying, anger, stealing, obscene talk, and bitterness. These converts lived in their old sinful habits from their adolescence, as the old saying goes, old habits die hard. But what Paul does is he reorients us in the gospel and better says old habits can only truly die by being united to Christ's death. The gospel does not demand a mere external behavior modification, but an internal change in the heart. The Bible does not merely call you to modify your behavior to be a more moral person. Because even unbelievers can do so. Anyone who has the habit of speeding when driving can immediately slow down and drive under the speed limit whenever they see a cop at a distance. An out-of-state college student who lives a hedonistic, lawless lifestyle could easily modify his or her behavior for his parents' approval when he comes back from summer break. 
A teenager who has a habit of using curse words around his school friends might be extra careful in watching his language during his interactions at church. Changing your behavior in the flesh is like spraying perfume on a dead, rotting corpse because they'll only make the stench worse. Trying to stop cursing to merely appear to be a more moral person is like spraying Febreze after using the restroom, which does not help at all <laughs> if hatred still remains in your heart. What is so interesting is that some of the most notorious internet thugs who bullies people on social media in the comment section or makes fun of people in an online game are unexpectedly the meek and, and fragile person that you would meet in your life. It's so easy to change your appearance, but it's actually impossible to change your heart apart from Christ. The lingering stench of sin can only be rid of through Christ's work. It's only in the gospel in which we can exude the love of Christ through the pores of our existence. In addition, this verse shows how man can twist God-imaging powers and gifts to rebel against his creator and God's covenant community. The tongue that God has given us to praise him and encourage one another and build one another up in love in sin is used to tear the church down. We see this in the world everywhere, whether it's in sports, whether it's in politics, the world is busy tearing each other up with their tongues rather than building each other up. Rarely you will see any type of positive, constructive dialogue in the media that builds up a hateful speech that tears one another down. Instead of reflecting the world in this matter by tearing the church down, the gospel renews our profane tongue so that we can reflect Christ by loving God and others, by building each other up in grace, in truth spoken in love, which is essentially countercultural if these moral imperatives are lived out in our lives. We now look at verses 31 through 32, which shows how the gospel turns killing into kindness. Verse 31 states, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Instead of killing the body of Christ with the vice of anger, of harboring bitterness, fury, anger in your hearts against one another, you are called to build one another up in kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. You're no longer called to be a stone-hearted killer of the body, but the gospel changes your hearts to be a kind-hearted builder of the church. Lashing out on others by shouting, slandering, cursing, or even by being passive-aggressive or speaking in your mind rather than out loud brings forth division and destruction within the church. On the other hand, the body is built up by putting on Christ's compassion and forgiving one another in kindness. What is the end goal of all of this? Why do we do these things in the first place just so that God would be pleased? It is true. 
that this is what God wants for us. But Paul also has an end goal, a vision for the church to live out these gospel realities. You see, what Paul has in mind for the church, the picture that he sees when he looks at the church is he views the church to be a place where God's presence dwells amongst us. These gospel virtues, these mundane dry gospel commands are actually the essential ingredients needed for the covenant community to cultivate an atmosphere where Christ's love saturates as we build one another up in grace. As Christ was compassionate and forgiving towards us, grace transforms us to be a compassionate and forgiving people of God. When the church does not live in light of its identity and function, people are so put off by the church's hypocrisy, which ends up driving them away further from Christ and further away from the church being left disillusioned. Especially at a time where there is so much division everywhere, where you look left or right, this text serves as a clarion call for the church to display the love of Christ by reflecting Christ's compassion and forgiveness. My mother grew up in a Buddhist family in South Korea and was the first in her family to be converted to the Christian faith. The way the Lord drew my mother to Christ was through being invited to church by one of her elementary teachers. Being the last born daughter of a family of five, she was neglected and uncared for, especially in a transitory time period in South Korea after the war, where there was a civil reconstruction and urbanization process going on, where she was left uncared throughout her life being born. But it was when, when she first stepped inside the church, she felt like this was her true home. Even at such a young age, this was the impression that God's people is her true family. Even being at such a young age, my mom told me she sensed the atmosphere of love and compassion the people had for one another. This atmosphere of love pointed her to the supernatural love of Christ. The church should not reflect the same divisiveness and enmity we see in the world today. With all the division and hatred in the world, people really do long for something more. They long for an Eden where there is peace, unity, and love. And it is true, it is a vision apart from the triune God. But the church, we're here and we're called to offer a sample. We're here to display a foretaste of heaven on earth as God's presence dwells amongst us as new creational beings. All in all, the Apostle Paul illustrates for us here in this list of commands, how the expulsive power of the gospel transforms us from the inside out. It changes greed to generosity, filthy language to fitting language, and killing to kindness. Whatever specific sin entangles you this very morning, I want to remind you that the power of the gospel is sufficient to transform every dark quarter of your hearts. But know that the Apostle Paul does not call you to passively remain in your old way of living, but he calls you to actively walk in a new way of life in affectionate obedience to God's law.
In other words, don't buy into the lie. Sanctification is not passive, but it is active. As the gospel gives you a new orientation by grace through the Holy Spirit, you are now enabled to actively pursue holiness and you are called to walk in a new way of loving God and others in conformity to Christ. The Apostle Paul later in Ephesians reminds us to be alert of the spiritual warfare that still wages on in our own flesh with the world and the devil of how there is still temptation to live in our old habits, whether it's lashing out on your family in anger and impatience or caving into your old temptation to lust or being lazy or living in a self-righteous, dead, cold, orthodox manner. Let us actively pursue to put to death the old ways and old habits in our old men and put on the new man in Christ. As John Newton famously said, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be, but still I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Remind yourself that even though you are not the person you want to be today, you're no longer the same person you once were in Christ because you're unified in Christ and his bond of love. So as a new creation, let us make sure to actively hate the things God hates and love the things God loves as we actively pursue to walk in God's love daily. As we look earlier in verse 32, Paul states, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Paul makes it clear here that a kind, forgiving heart cannot be mustered in and of itself. Forgiving one another only comes by first personally knowing and experiencing forgiveness for ourselves and is the basis for loving others. In other words, the love displayed for you at the cross of Christ should be the motivation to walk in love, which lends us to our last point today. The motivation to walk in love is Christ's sacrificial love. It's only when the sinner receives the sheer magnitude of, of God's love that we as believers can be enabled and have the capacity to display that love to others. God's love must be the motive power and the engine that drives us to love others. Let's look at what Paul states in chapter five, verses one through two. Paul states, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. These two verses should really be included in chapter four as one whole passage and one whole pericope. The very word, therefore, that comes up again in verse one functions as a bridge of a general statement to capture what is at the heart of all the moral commands we just went over, which is the summa, the summary of what the Christian life consists of, which is simply this, walk in love since Christ loved us. This very statement is repeated in 1 John chapter 3, 
And it is at the essence of what it means to live the Christian life. And as image bearers are originally in the way God has created us, he created us so that we would be recipients of God's love and reflect, to God, reflect it back to God and others. And that's what it means to precisely walk in love. Through being united to Christ, we're joined in intra-Trinitarian love as the Father loved the Son in all eternity and the bonds of love through the Spirit. We now receive the overflow of that love as we are now able to return this love back to its source, namely God. God is the fountainhead of infinite love and we are merely finite containers, which measureless love is poured into by Christ so that it can overflow out to others. So the verb imitate here in verse one actually simply means to mirror and reflect God's love to others. In other words, we are like mirrors where God's radiating love reflects and is continually displayed. In verse two, the apostle Paul goes more specific and he highlights the sacrificial nature of God's love by alluding Christ's death on the cross. Verse two states, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The ultimate demonstration of God's love is displayed through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross as he stood condemned in your place. Jesus bore your wrath in order to satisfy your righteous requirements that you can never meet on your end. He took on your punishment so that you are fully pardoned. And if you have truly experienced his sacrificial love through Jesus, we ought to walk in this infinite magnitude of love. Such a sacrificial love demands such a response. The cross truly demands everything and it demands your entire heart allegiance. A while back, a few years ago, actually, now, now that I think about it, I read a missionary report in Wuhan, China, which was the epicenter of the virus that captured what was going on in the climax of the outbreak. This report powerfully demonstrated for me what it means to walk in love, even in the most dire circumstances. Before COVID broke out in China, especially in Wuhan, Christians and missionaries were not encouraged and were persecuted when they shared the gospel. But the missionary report states this. When the city was separated by the quarantine and protective masks became the most valuable thing in Wuhan since it was all sold out, people started getting real desperate. In response, the missionaries chose to remain in the city to preach the gospel, hand out tracts, and give free masks. The sharing of the word of God brought the hope and love of Christ. And the missionaries started becoming favored in the city, even in the authorities' eyes. A police officer came to one sister, listened to the gospel, and left with a tract and mask happily. After a while, another police officer shortly after, four more officers arrived, heard, and left with a tract and a mask also. These people were the very ones that used to be concerned about the gospel message, but now they came to the Christians for help. 
and they bow down to our God. Like these Christians wore yellow suits for protection. So yellow has become the most beautiful color in the city. And Christians have gained the respect they never had because of their willingness to risk their health to serve. What a great example this is that shows us how Christ's sacrificial love should mold and shape the way we live our lives. Instead of isolating from the world, the church is called to embody the love of Christ. So let us continue to walk in his love by daily putting off our former ways of living and putting on the love of Christ, speaking truth and love, building up Christ's body for his glory. Amen. Let us now pray together.